Hello, and welcome back to the Modern Retail Rundown. I'm your host, senior reporter, Gabby Barco, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Hello, Kale. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Gabby. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to talk today. We have so many stories lined up. Me too. And first, actually, actually, I want to just give a quick thing that I gave a slight miss. I spoke a little bit incorrectly last week, or not quite. But for those who are listening and who are Kirkland families, I said that Kirkland was best known for Walmart. I want to say that we all know that Kirkland is best known for Costco. You do actually buy Kirkland in Walmart, but that's neither here nor there. But I just wanted to get that at the gate that we strive for accuracy here at Modern Retail. So I apologize for misrepresenting Kirkland. But you you go ahead, Gabby. I apologize. No, that's okay. We love a correction. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, this is Modern Retail's newest podcast, and it drops every Saturday morning. And every week, we break down the biggest headlines in the retail world. So today, we'll be going over three stories. One is Instacart's long road to an IPO, and the second one is Nordstrom's Canadian woes. And finally, we asked the question, why do so many Americans oppose dollar stores in their town? So, Kale, why don't we start with Instacart? It's one of our favorite topics. We covered <laughs> it so much throughout the pandemic because they kind of got a lifeline there. Um, but they've also been supposedly going public for a really long time. Yeah, I feel like every year there's a new story that hits that uh, Instacart is preparing to go public, and then then it doesn't happen. And so let's just let's just have it happen. I'm ready. I'm ready for Instacart <laughs> to go public. Yeah, I'm ready for that ticker to start ticking. Yeah. Um, so this IPO, as I mentioned, has been uh, a long time in the making. I believe the first time we really heard about it was uh, maybe around 2020, or at least like in earnest, um, right after they got that huge boost during early lockdowns. Um, and then it was basically has been delayed on and off for the last couple of years up until last October was the last report where we heard, you know, there, it's on pause due to market volatility. Which, yeah, of course. A lot of and it's, I mean, like with excited. Instacart, it's a really, it's an interesting thing because it was part of the boom of grocery delivery. Clearly, we know why that happened. And it was, it was seeing, you know, it was seeing growth before the pandemic, but it was always a question of like, is this here to stay and how will it be able to be sustainable? And I remember when, you know, both you and I were covering Instacart in like 2019, all of the conversation about its financials were about its ad platform. Like that was sort of like the way it was trying to pitch itself as something that will be here for the long run. And then the the pandemic hit um, and the the conversation completely shifted to everybody needs their groceries online. And then e-commerce sort of began to, to flatten the e-commerce curve. And so the conversation shifted back to services and things like that. And with that, it seems like Instacart missed, missed its opportunity at the beginning, you know, in 2020, 2021, to really go public and go with a boom. And because it took so long, now it's trying to claw its way back. Even though, according to this latest uh, report from the Wall Street Journal, it's like it saw pretty good growth over the last year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, 50% in the fourth quarter, and their profit margins rose by over 80%. So those are obviously huge, especially compared to 2021. Um, do you, are uh, we spec, I mean, they're obviously private, so we don't know the exact breakdown, but I am sort of w wondering whether the ad network has helped to boost that because it feels like every brand we talk to on there, uh, Food and Bev especially, talk about you know, advertising a lot on there. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say the ad network definitely has played a part. I think from the sources that I've talked to and from my understanding of reading your stories, the sources that you have talked to, they have said we're on Instacart. We wish it were better. You, uh, that That's sort of the impression that I get. But also Instacart has very in a very smart way, followed the Amazon advertising playbook in a, in a sort of pay-to-play kind of way where it's it's created all of these different ad units so that, you know, since they got such an explosion of customers, they, they asked brands to, you know, well, if you want good visibility, advertise on our platform. And, and that has been smart. I think, you know, I would love to see the breakdown of ad revenue compared to, you know, a, compared to other sales and whether or not it, it is a real portion of it, but clearly they have they've set the pathway to to make this a a sustainable like supplementary business um, for for its balance sheet. Right, and um, I mean I think with that we should maybe go a little bit into um, why grocery is really important and why the you know sort of volatility slowdowns uh, and ramp ups of grocery demand directly impacts Instacart because really what they do is they have these relationships or deals with retailers. They don't actually own, obviously, any inventory. And so with that, it does feel very tied to where people are shopping at any given time. Exactly. And also it's tied to, you know, people will always buy groceries, but I'm not convinced people will always buy groceries online or not not the a major majority of the of the United States or the world. You know what I mean? To to use such a service, Instacart charges fees, and there will still always be grocery stores that people can walk into in that most analog way with a cart and and buy things. And so, uh, gro- you know, grocery shopping is usually recession, not recession proof, but like in in the sense that people always need to buy goods. People might trade down and buy private labels, but I do think that. If you are a business like Instacart, where you're essentially an additional service or feature that's to many perceived as a luxury, you have to figure out other ways to sort of boost your income so that uh, so that you're there for the long run during you know many different economic uh, ter- economically mm-hmm. turbulent times. Yeah, and I do wonder whether we'll see you know um, any sense of. St- stickiness that happened. Um, I do remember them really uh, hammering that in, whether, you know, it's it's now become, you know, the people who got used to uh, shopping on Instacart, whether it's sort of, you know, older people, uh, seniors, I think was a huge demographic for them. So, you know, it's kind of going a little bit outside of the typical urban millennial with disposable income uh, audience. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, who they kind of to be their target next. And I also think that what they're doing, and this is very smart, is they are going beyond their core of, of grocery. Um, so they've they've expanded be- yeah. into, into like new areas like convenience stores. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Like, you know, just and, and like I think they've they've had Beauty. with retail shops, they, like they've been really trying to make it so that they they are part of many different types of shopping cycles for different types of retailers. And what's more, and this is something that they've been really pushing recently, and I bet you that this is tied to them knowing that they're they want to go public. They've been focusing on in-store tech. So they have a bunch of new technology for for being at a grocery store so that that is more, you know, more tech savvy. I think like they have smart carts, I'm pretty sure. Um, Different things that are similar to like Amazon's uh, uh, in-store technology, uh, Instacart is trying to do. And it's actually, 
compared to Amazon, it's smart. If I were a grocer, I would probably be be happier to work with an Instacart as a technology provider than I would for Amazon for obvious reasons. You know what I mean? Right. Except for that issue about, you know, the working conditions at Instacart, which is a whole different rabbit hole. Well, I mean, yeah, that, yeah that, that's for the <laughs> shoppers. And I think that that's, I think that the working conditions are super important. And also that goes to every time I've only used Instacart a handful of times and they were mm-hmm. like during the throes of the pandemic when we were all very, very scared to, you know, go into grocery stores. And it's, mm-hmm. I've never had a perfectly seamless experience because it's, it's not like they're going into a dark store where they know where everything is. It's just like, a shopper who is paid usually not very well, who is like very harried shopping for many people. I don't know. It, it seems like it isn't, I've never had, it d- did not seem like the the grocery shopping of the future that I thought it was supposed to be. It seemed very mm-hmm. frenetic. And I kept getting notifications like, we can't get Swaps. your whole week bread. Here's some Wonder Bread or some, something like that. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, exactly. Or flavors or whatnot. And then that's where, um, that's actually one of the biggest complaints we hear a lot about because some people, you know, would argue that, well, if I knew that was the case, maybe I would have gone into a different store or I'd have maybe modified my trip or whatnot. And so that's a lot of that inventory is really maybe one of their biggest pain points. And we'll see how algorithms and tech could help with that. Yeah. And I mean, like the thing that with the tech part, it's the idea that it's, they're trying to make it so that they don't, they're not even part of the e-commerce experience. They're just like making checkouts, have have sensors and different types of uh, technology that grocers will buy just to like use in their stores. And so if that becomes a real business, I don't, I don't know if it has, I doubt it has because it's very, very new. That's kind of a smart way to to grow a part of the business that isn't reliant just on e-commerce demand. So I think it's kind of interesting. We'll see how that goes. I'm not, you know, most of Instacart's, not most, but I feel like a lot of Instacart's clients are small to medium-sized grocers. A lot of there are some mom and pop shops. They're, they're, com- they're companies that probably can't spend too much money investing in new technology. And so I would be interested to know how many are able to actually shell out the money so that their stores have smart carts, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then with that said, I think you mentioned uh, category expansions and we keep you know, using the word grocery, but at this point, I mean, you could order um, skincare from Sephora through Instacart, which is, just feels, you know, very much like the future. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's like how many people are actually going to be doing that versus just either going to the store or even doing next day delivery from the Sephora site. So these big, yeah, the big retailers that they're partnering with um, seems to be more about variety versus, um, you know, maybe actual uh sales. Yeah. And I like one final note before we move on. I do think the the brand partnerships like the one was with Sephora are very smart because that's how those are the companies that, you know, people really seek out. And so if, you know, I, I imagine there are a lot of Sephora users who had no idea it was on Instacart and then wanted their, you know, cleanser or whatever, and then bought it. And that that's a g- good way to get someone to use the app in a new and novel way. That probably is a repeat purchase. And there's so much brand affinity with Sephora, and there's so much repeat purchasing with Sephora. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I imagine if they can ink more partnerships like that, that'll further help with growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, you can even use your rewards points or program on Instacart, the Sephora one. So that's, that's really getting in the weeds, but for those interested... <laughs> So next up, uh, we will be moving on to 
another volatile part of the industry, uh, which is uh, Nordstrom's ever-growing pains. Uh, This week, the department store announced it's closing all of its Canadian stores. I believe that's about 13. So, you know, not as much as the U.S., but still a decent amount. And uh, it's all being, it's all going to happen by this June. And I believe that will uh, lay off about 2,500 employees in the process. So this is part of the cost-cutting strategy that we've heard about from Nordstrom. Um, you know, like other retailers, they have been struggling, but uh, I'm interested to hear why Canada in particular has not worked out for them in the past decade since they entered. You know, I think this was the the big international expansion for Nordstrom. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that uh, Nordstrom has been only in the U.S. with a brick and mortar presence, but has was testing out Canada as an international expansion. You can buy, I'm pretty sure, products internationally from Nordstrom. Yes, like you, you, they like do you can, ship like, to about. They do ship, and you, they countries. do different currencies, but they don't have any stores specifically there. And Canada mm-hmm. in 2014 was was the big test for them. Um, and I was reading, you know, in researching for this, like there were a bunch of stories from analysts saying how like they're doing it right. They only opened, you know, they were doing it very slow and steady, plotting it, you know, plotting which areas to go. But like, clearly it didn't work. And I would say one, one more thing with Nordstrom is that everybody thinks of it as a leading department store, but compared to other big box stores, it doesn't have as as many locations, either globally or in the US, as as others. Like, I, I've, I'm trying to re- get the number. But, like, it, it's not, in terms of brick-and-mortar locations, as big as you would expect. And so I imagine if it expanded internationally and that wasn't performing to expectations, that is hugely going to dent the bottom line. And I imagine that's one reason why this happened. Yeah. Uh, and then we should mention that, you know, it does seem like maybe this is even collateral damage a little bit because uh, they've had a rough few months, including the holiday season where it's, you know, usually one of their biggest uh, of the year. And so I I do wonder whether this is just sort of part of a bigger strategy to just cut costs where they can. I mean, I think that that is the name of the game in terms of strategy with department stores right now where none of them are doing very well. I'm, you know, uh it, Nordstrom's income fell to $119 million. It was $200 million last year. But even that, this loss of income exceeded analyst expectations, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Like, I think that they, they thought they were going to do much worse. But I nearly every other uh, department store out there has announced cost-cutting in some measures, be they like Macy's closing stores, um, you know, all, all, these, all these different things. And so it, it seems like, yeah... I imagine their newest geography that they went to was probably the first on the chopping block in terms of ways to save money. Um, and like, I, I, it's interesting because I think they said it's going to cost them around $400 million um, uh, to when, when this is all said and done. I'm assuming that they've done the crunch numbers and it'll save them a lot over time. But when they first launched in 2014, Nordstrom said that it was a billion dollar opportunity and clearly that, mm. that didn't work out. Yeah, no, Canadians said, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> and with that said, we should, well, maybe not, you know, that aggressively, but we should mention also that this, you know, closing stores has been a, a, what I feel like it's, it's been happening for years, right? Even pre-COVID, a lot of these uh, department stores have been cutting, you know, streamlining, consolidating uh, locations after sort of just bloating their store counts. Yeah, I think that there's a really interesting corollary to this. And no two stores are the same. It's never apples to apples. But um, Target entered Canada in 
I believe 2012, if I'm not mistaken. And Target did a slightly different thing than Nordstrom, where um, it opened over 100 locations in Canada. And it was balls to the wall. We're going to be going to Canada. This is our new thing. And it was a complete and utter failure. Um, they They closed most of their stores there. It was a similar thing where... Target was testing the waters of international expansion using Canada as the as the ground to do that. The idea was that there are, you know, Canadians are pretty similar to Americans in terms of affinity. It doesn't, you don't need to do, you know, ship freight. And like a lot of the brands that Canadians use are similar to the ones that Americans use. It makes a lot of sense, but also it didn't work and was widely considered to be a huge failure for Target. And so even with Nordstrom doing a smaller version of that and it lasted longer than Target's uh, Target's experiment. I I think that it's interesting that both of them ultimately came to the same conclusion, which is we have to we have to close it. Yeah, which is interesting in the case of Target because you hear about how obsessed people are. You know, the first thing they want to do is go to Target from abroad, and um, I guess it just goes to show that maybe whether it's the assortment or just the type of you know the habits that people have overseas or even in Canada is. Uh, pretty different than the way we shop. Absolutely. Yeah. I think and I think it's all about execution and I don't know about Nordstrom's execution in terms of merchandising, but Target's from what I understand did not a Target in Canada was not the same as a Target in the US in terms of what they were selling, what it you know how it was it, it seemed it seemed bleak at times. Yeah, so let's move on right now to uh the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to stores. Well, we're just talking about prices here. Not saying it's lesser than, but dollar stores. It seems like a lot of towns don't want dollar store chains there. And this has been an interesting phenomenon in the last couple of years that we've been seeing, but it's sort of ramped up uh, in the last few months. Uh, There's a New York Times article this week that is saying that since 2019, over 70 towns across the country uh, have voted against dollar stores opening there, which is just really interesting, especially right now where they're doing really well because a lot of people are trading down and shopping there during inflation. Yeah, I mean, this is a not a new phenomenon, but it's interesting that more towns are voting against them. It's often seen as an inevitability in a lot of small, uh, poor towns that dollar stores were open, but also that sometimes has the the impact of of hurting other businesses because people are trading down, they're going to go there. You know, there there's a lot of a lot of different layers to this. Um, and so I do think it's really interesting and noteworthy to, to see that there are towns that are fighting back because if you if you talk, you know, if you read the the earnings of Dollar General or, or or Dollar Tree, it's all about expansion. It's all about finding the next location. And they, you know, they they have a science in terms of where they open and how to do it and how cost effective it is. So the fact that there is an, you know, a mounting external pressure against it is definitely something to watch over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, they do argue that these stores are supposed to be benefiting, you know, poor or rural areas without a lot of access to um, where to the point where they even offer food and grocery. But um, with that said, what are your thoughts on some of the controversies that they've had recently? I mean, we've heard of a literal rap problem, I think it was about last year or 2021, uh, that really just put them in a terrible light when it comes to a national spotlight. So, you know, it's been sort of ups and downs. Yeah. And I mean, like the dollar, the dollar store business model is that of 
sort of capitalizing on on generally more impoverished areas and you know sell, selling cheaper goods but also using that i don't know it's it it has often been viewed by external people as as quite predatory and also i believe that there have been like sociological and economic studies that show that the the presence of of dollar stores can actually like you know while while true providing goods for for a uh, community can also like help you know d- does not do good for for the other parts of the economy of a specific community i'm pretty sure and so mm-hmm. i think that it's you know th- this isn't a new thing and there have been a lot of people who have fought against uh dollar stores for uh, you know as long as i can imagine there's also been a lot of people who fought against other types of retailers going into communities um which i think we're going to get into mm-hmm. cuz I-, I i can speak personally about that just from from my upbringing but like it is i think that it is <laughs> uh it is interesting that uh that it's hitting fever pitch now because there was such, I feel like there was a lot of good storylines during the pandemic about, about dollar stores and like, I don't know, like their growth and like the different ways that they were, you know, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's been up and downs and ups and downs in terms of what people have been saying about dollar stores. And so it's interesting that this is what, where it's at now. Right. And then do you think you sort of alluded to this, but do you think this is, uh, maybe a chain issue too on a wider uh, scale because you mentioned, you know, big box stores seeing this. I think Walmart is probably the biggest one we hear or at least makes a lot of headlines whenever they're opening in a store in uh, in a town and start dominating that market. Um, Do you want to give us some anecdotal evidence there? I mean, like, and like the New York Times article mentions this, but like I remember in the 90s, where I grew up specifically in, in Massachusetts, there there was a huge movement to when Walmart wanted to open in the area that I grew up in, and there were protests, um, and it was a very mm-hmm. very big thing. And like it, the the New York Times article says that a lot of the pushback for the Walmart um, stuff was about was union focused, and I think that was mm-hmm. predominantly in the West Coast. Where I grew up, it was more politically oriented and less about unions and more about local local economics and local businesses. And so the idea was, you know, if Walmart comes to town, the local department store is going to close. Um, And so, and my town has pretty much was successful. There is not a Walmart there now. There's one 20 miles um, south of it. But I I think that this is a very similar movement to that where it's, uh, you know, both people fighting against, you know, I think what people are fighting against with with the dollar store is not only the local um, economy, but also the fact that I think on average, most people who work at dollar dollar stores earn less than $15 an hour. So it's sort of like further perpetuating uh, economic problem and, and, you know, economic divides. And so I think, I think it's really interesting to look back on some of the fights and it's, with Walmart specifically, they have been able to completely shed themselves of that view or mostly shed themselves of the view that people think of them mm-hmm. as as really predatory and going into communities. It's now just ubiquitous. Walmart is everywhere. Mm-hmm. We talk about Walmart in such a different light than we talked about Walmart in the mid-90s and early 2000s because it won the, despite the protests in Western Mass where I grew up. It is now everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it was sort of just... Um, it was... It seemed like it was uh, a matter of time for them to just sort of penetrate. At this point, they are they have the biggest store count of any retailer in the country, and maybe dollar stores are next. I mean, maybe I do think that it's a different one of the reasons why Walmart has been able to be more or less successful is that it was always viewed as like a value big box store, and it has been able to expand that view 
to to be amenable to people of all types of incomes. And I don't think dollar stores do that. I think dollar stores specifically focus on lower income areas and lower income families. And what Walmart did that I think from a branding perspective was ultimately successful is that it became just the store that no matter what type of family you are, you buy from them because it has everything. And so it will be interesting to see if you know these dollar businesses are able to do what Walmart did. I'm not convinced they can, but I that doesn't mean they're going to go away. It just means that there will probably mm-hmm. be more fights like this and uh, it will continue using the playbook that's used up until now. Right. Well, uh, that's all the time we have this week. Don't forget to rate and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. It really helps us out a lot. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Modern Retail Podcast to hear interviews with industry leaders every Thursday. That's hosted by Kale. And Kale, do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown on, no pun intended, a little (laughs) bit of a preview on who you have on next week? Yeah, I talked with M.M. LaFleur's uh, founder and CEO, uh, Sarah LaFleur. It was a great conversation. We talked about all things workwear, all things apparel, and uh, store openings, which are things that I know you and I both think about all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excited for that one. And of course, don't forget this podcast, The Modern Retail Rundown, drops every Saturday morning. So we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. 